From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are extremely grateful to have the opportunity to speak with UW-Madison's Keisha Lindsay, Associate Professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies and Political Science. Professor Lindsay's research and teaching interests include feminist political theory, Black feminism, Black masculinity, and gender-based politics in the African diaspora. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Lindsay. Thank you for having me. So just jumping right in, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in teaching and all the different research areas that you have expertise in? Sure. So um, let's see, what do I want to say about myself? I've lived in Madison for about 10 years. I have a joint appointment in Gender and Women's Studies and Political Science. And as you mentioned, my sort of teaching and research interests sort of span the fields of uh, feminist theory, African-American political thought, um, some work on African diaspora uh, theorizing and politics. Um, in terms of how I, I guess, got to this place, uh, that's a good question. I, I guess I could start with the gender and women's studies piece. I was, um, an, in undergrad, I was a political science and black studies major. And interestingly, I took my first gender and women's studies course in my very last semester of college. And it was just kind of eye-opening and just gave me a new lens or a new perspective, to, a new way to think about black politics. So that was really eye-opening. Um, and then I did some nonprofit work after undergrad. Then I um, ultimately moved back to Jamaica, where I'm from originally. I, I came to America as a, as a kid. Went back to Jamaica um, and ended up doing a master's in gender and development studies there. Then did some work in West Africa. I ultimately ended up being an academic because to be honest, all the other jobs I had, I got kind of bored after about two years in them. And so I have a, you know, I did a lot of nonprofit work. Um, I had about an eight year gap between undergrad and, and going to do my PhD in political science. So um, that's sort of the, the real answer. I, you know, I found a lot of the work I did really interesting, but after a couple of years, I found myself maybe asking some bigger questions and that led me back to graduate school. And I, you know, um, did a PhD in political theory and I focused on feminist theory um, and critical race theory. And so that's sort of my academic pathway, I guess. Yeah, and I, I know you have a book called In a Classroom of Their Own, The Intersection of Race and Feminist Politics and in All Black Male Schools. I know you talk a lot about key issues of race and power that are also like major, are major components of your research now. Can you tell us a little bit about these key questions that you ask in your book and how you address them? Sure, so the book is um, at its most, uh, sort of the most basic level of the book is about this push to open separate schools for black boys. And this movement really began in the, ne the early 1990s in Detroit. And I got interested in the topic because around 2010, 2011, soon after I got to Madison, there was an effort to establish uh, one of these schools here in Madison. 
And what was intriguing to me, both in the Madison case and nationwide, was sort of the strange political bedfellows who were in support of these schools. So you sort of had Madison, you know, Madison liberals in favor of these schools. You had more conservative-minded Madisonians interested in these schools. And then I, you know, as I was sort of just reading the press accounts, I saw that that um, that sort of strange mix, and strange especially in the kind of polarized climate that we're living in, political climate we're living in, that that, that mix was reflected at the national level. So nationally, everyone from, and I'm not exaggerating here, everyone from Louis Farrakhan to Hillary Clinton has expressed um, support for separate schools for black boys. So I got really interested in this topic. You know, I was like, what is it about these schools that's galvanizing this kind of interest across the, um, political spectrum. So, and these separate schools for black boys um, run the gamut from elementary to high school, although most of them are really elementary and um, um, middle schools. And so the book, that's, you know, it's, that's the starting point of the book. Um, I like to think of the book as, it's a, it's an exercise in political theory with a heavy emphasis on practice. I say something like that in the book. And what I mean by that is that I, in the book, I ultimately take the push for these schools to establish these schools to ask and hopefully answer a number of theoretical questions. Um, one of them has to do with how do these, the proponents of these schools understand sort of the relationship between race and gender or the intersection between race and gender. And this notion of that race and gender and class intersect is, is, is a black feminist concept. And what I find interesting is that many proponents of these schools use the logic of intersectionality. And by logic of intersectionality, I mean the, it's the, it's the presumption that for instance, how black people experience racism intersects with their gender. So in plain English, someone who identifies as a black man will have a different experience of racism than someone who identifies as a black woman. So, and, you know, and usually we think of intersectionality, at least in sort of academic land, as, a, as really a uniquely black feminist concept. And so what was interesting to me as I got into this topic was I found that many, not all, but many proponents of these schools were using this logic of intersectionality not to, but not applying it to black women, but applying it to black boys, and often applying it in ways that led to some outcomes that I, I think of as really sort of anti-feminist. And so that, you know, theoretically was very interesting to me. And, it, you know, I use the book to make the case that intersectionality is sometimes used to advance a sort of feminist um, politics, but not always. And um, so that's sort of what, so that's one of the sort of uh, theoretical interventions that I that I make in the book. Yeah, that's all so incredibly interesting, and I'm really glad you brought up mm -hmm. the concept of intersectionality because it is at the core of like so much political discourse and mm -hmm. controversy today. And you also bring up a really interesting point that when we talk about intersectionality, it's part of theory and it's part of academia. So, for listeners that might not engage with a lot of theory or might not engage with a lot of academia. Uh, can you help our listeners by providing some like definitions of um, like what intersectionality is, um, sure. especially in reference to your uh, your research? Sure. And, you know, I'll do a little self-promotion. I'm teaching an entire course on intersectionality this fall but for any listeners who might be interested. So what is intersectionality? It is a contested term, like so many other things in, in, um, in theory and in academia, but at its most basic, it's the idea, it's the concept is that when we think about um, areas of difference, uh, like race, gender, class, um, 
you know, traditionally we often think, you know, if you're a Marxist and I'm being a little crude here, right, you might believe that class or class inequality is sort of the original sin, the original source of inequality and oppression from which all other kinds of inequality stem, right? Um, but intersectionality is, 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 a, is a, the logic of intersectionality is very different. It suggests that, at least in the sort of more mainstream understanding of intersectionality, is that we can't rank order oppressions, right? That they feed off of each other, they're mutually constructing in ways that, def that sort of resist the sort of rank ordering. And so an example might be, and even if we sort of put it in, I'm trying to use a sort of black feminist example, it might be, if we take the very, you know, topical, um, issue of police brutality, there are many black feminist theorists of intersectionality who make arguments along the following lines that, you know, we live in a structurally racist place and black people experience racist violence inflicted upon them by the police, but how they experience that violence, that racist violence intersects with their gender. Um, and so many African-American women um, might be sexually assaulted by racist police officers, right? Or might be subject to invasive physical searches um, that are often highly sexualized by police officers. Whereas perhaps African-American men um, might experience a, a, a more a different kind of, a gender specific kind of violence that's maybe based on the, you know, there's stereotypes in our society that African-American men are hyper-masculine and violence. So maybe police officers might interact with them on the assumption that they're going to be violent. So it could be that black men's racist interactions with the police are more physically um, violent. So th that's kind of the, the logic here, right? So the idea would be that in the case of African-American women, for instance, we can't rank order and say that they're primarily victims of sexism, sexism or patriarchy, or they're primarily victims of of, of racism, a sort of classic intersectional argument is that it's impossible to, to do that rank ordering and that instead we should focus on how their experiences of racism and um, patriarchy intersect and sort of gain meaning from each other. Yeah, um, it's also interesting and I'm so glad you, you've brought up so many amazing points, um, but kind of backtracking do you want to explain kind of the difference between black feminist theory and, and like the more general like uh, feminist movement historically? Yeah, that's also, you're asking all these really great questions. Um, okay, so that's a complex, what is the relationship between sort of black feminist theory and feminist theory more broadly defined? Depends on who you ask, right? Um, okay. Depending on who you ask, one, one way of thinking about Black feminist theory um, is to sort of conceptualize it as a way of resisting systemic racism in mainstream, you know, white-dominated feminist theory. So there are lots of Black, black feminist theorists, Bell Hooks, Patricia Hill Collins, who argue that there is a need for this thing called Black feminism in general and Black feminist theory because when feminists um, or, you know, or white feminists think about um, women's oppression and women's resistance from oppression, they tend to think about themselves, right? So one classic argument that could be made is, you know, if you think about sort of, you know, the notion that women are oppressed um, because they are kept in the home and they're prevented from working, that logic doesn't apply historically to African-American women who historically were slaves and were brought to America to work right? 
and who traditionally have been working class and poor and have had to work. So that's an example, that's sort of one example that could be used to make the case that there's a need for this thing called black feminism because black women's experiences of oppression are different from white women's. And um, you know, if we think of feminist theory at a very crude way as being about conceptualizing how women are oppressed and how women can resist their oppression, uh, many black feminists argue that it's impossible just to speak of women as this large homogenous group. There are different kinds of women, right? They're black women, they're working class women. Um, and so hence the need for different sort of schools of, of, of feminist thought, different ways of, different schools of thought that are still focused on women's oppression and how to challenge women's oppression, but that recognize that women have different racial, class, religious um, types of backgrounds. So that's one way of thinking about the relationship between Black feminist theory and feminist theory more broadly defined. Um, another way of thinking about it is that it's not simply the case that Black feminist theory has arisen in response to sort of racist white feminist theory. Another way of thinking about Black feminist theory is that Black women have in fact always been central to feminist theory and feminist theorizing and feminist activism. I mean, the National Organization of Women was co-founded um, by a black woman, although that, you know, that media, that's not really in the, the sort of media, the mainstream media narrative about feminist theory and activism. But the second approach is to say, well, hey, you know, black women or African-American women have always been central to feminist theorizing and activism. So to talk about black feminist theory is not to sort of try to create some stark divide between black women and white women, when in fact, black women have always been central to feminist theory and activism. So and, you know, I wanna to emphasize too, there are many different kinds of black feminism. So I teach a class on black feminist theory and the first few weeks are really spent talking about different kinds of black feminisms. There are black Marxist feminists, there are black liberal feminists, there are black nationalist feminists. So, you know, in, in, in and of itself, it's also quite complicated. Yeah, it's it's all so complicated, especially like throwing in those modifiers and also like the intersection. I know like in the um, in feminist theory, uh, just like also considering like trans exclusionary radical yeah. feminists or like as they're known on the internet TERFs. Yeah. Um, so it, like, it's definitely super interesting mm -hmm. and important to talk about like those intersections as well. Oh, definitely, definitely. And it, and, and it is, I mean, I think, and you know, sort of thinking about what you're saying with intersectionality, intersectionality is, it's, it's, and there are many, you know, folks who are writing on this now, intersectionality has its own interesting trajectory, right? Um, and one of the things that's happening um, across the nation is thinking about the relationship between sort of transgender politics and feminist politics. And I think often people assume that there's a quote unquote natural um, I don't know, synthesis between the two, but not all feminists feel that and not all transgender activists feel that. So, and, and so it leads to some very interesting um, uh, politics and some very interesting theorizing. Yeah, it's all, it, it all feels like it's coming to a head every day. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but kind of turning now to some of your other uh, research interests, Defining and studying Black masculinity in the context of political and economic power uh, must just be a, a monumental task. Can you talk a little bit about like your work in that? Yeah, I mean, so part of it is, you know, is the book in a classroom of their own where I'm obviously focusing on discourses around Black men in general, but Black boys in particular, and 
one of the things that's um, for, for black feminist theorists like myself, it's, you know, it's really interesting to, to, to theorize black masculinities um, because in some ways, sort of our everyday conversations about black men are very interesting. So on the one hand, um, black men are, are rightfully understood and constructed as, as victims of systemic racism. I, you know, it's, I don't think it's hard to prove that. Um, if you look at black boys' performance in the school system, if we look at young black men sort of put on the, you know, school to prison pipeline, the, the evidence of systemic racism is just there and it's very clear. Um, at the same time, one of the kinds of, one of the things that black feminists do is also examine what it means for some black men to be simultaneously privileged and oppressed. So what does it mean to be um, a victim of systemic racism in the classroom, the workplace, etc. But then also to be able to exercise varying degrees of gendered power and privilege over, for instance, black women, right? So that's what's interesting to me. You know, that's a theorist in me. I like these sort of, you know, uh, at least liminal, uh, you know, sort of very um, messy categorizations, right? So um, I'm, I think as a theorist, um, that's sort of what I've been engaged in when I study black masculinities. Um, and there are other folks who uh, study other kinds of masculinities, working class masculinities, right? And, and I think these sort of um, masculinities where uh, the, the, the men in question are occupying different categories, uh, they, they exist at the intersection of different categories. It complicates feminist theory because it makes it very hard to simply say that all men oppress all women, right? Um, does, does it depend on who the man is, right? Um, and so that's sort of what theoretically has drawn me to thinking about masculinities in general and black masculinities in particular. I think there's a way in which it complicates how feminists think about um, masculinity. It also complicates how anti-racist theorists think about racism, quite frankly, right? And I think it also complicates the notion that all black people are equally disempowered. Um, some black people have more power than others. Um, and so that's sort of what's drawn me to thinking about black mask, um, black masculinities. So how does all of that kind of play into the context or in you, you mentioned this earlier, but how does all of that play into the narrative around police brutality and the black lives matter movement right now? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And again, I, and I, some of what I, I want to make it clear that some of what I'm saying is stuff that, you know, lots of other black feminists have said, so I don't want to take credit as these are sort of my original ideas, but there are a couple of ways to think about narratives around Black masculinity in terms of Black Lives Matter. One way is that, you know, one argument is that, and I tend to believe this, that historically, um, in terms of anti-racist struggles, they've tended, the public face of these struggles have tended to be masculine dominated, right? So if you look at the civil rights movement, for instance, right, all of the sort of leaders that we'd all learn about a civil rights movement in fourth grade civics or something are all men, right? Martin Luther King, um, and we can think of other names. Um, so one, one way of thinking about masculinity in the current moment, and lots of black feminists have talked about this, is that the experiences of black men tend to be foregrounded in anti-racist struggles, whether it's the civil rights movement, whether it's Black Lives Matter, and the, the kinds of black experiences that make it to the Washington Post or the New York Times or whatever, USA Today, tend to be the 
experiences of black men. So there are ways in which black women's voices are silenced. And so, you know, and we see this in many ways in the Black Lives Matter movement, um, um, where black men's experiences of oppression justifiably make it to the newspaper as they should. Um, but the experiences of black women, that doesn't seem to happen quite as much. Even if you think about the shooting of Breonna Taylor, um, she was the emerger, EMS, the emergency medical um, service provider who was recently shot by police in a case of mistaken identity in her own home. Um, and there have been protests around that, um, but they haven't garnered quite the same media attention as say, George Floyd. So, and so there's some black feminists who say that this is part of our longer trope. So in the civil rights movement, for instance, um, there was a, you know, the, in, at the March on, uh, the, all those speeches that occurred, um, the March on Washington, when Martin Luther King made his famous um, speech, black women were not allowed to speak. Uh, you know, they were protesting behind the stage, literally. And the black male leader said, no, you're, you can sing, you can come out and sing, but you will not be allowed to speak on the, uh, you know. So this is part of a longer trope, even though black women were very actively organizing behind the scenes in the civil rights movement. So some, you know, so that's one way of thinking about the relationship between black, uh, black masculinities and what's happening now. Um, and it's kind of ironic because black lives, the, 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 the hashtag black lives matter was actually founded by three black women. Um, and so, so some see that as part of a sort of ongoing trope in terms of how we think about um, gender politics and, black, and how black people resist against their oppression. Now there's a counter argument though, there's always a counter argument. That there are people who feel that Black Lives Matter in some ways is more gender progressive than conventional sort of civil rights organizing. Um, because you know black lives matter is not a, it's not a high it, the, the the movement doesn't have the same sort of hierarchical structure that said you know say the civil rights movement had it's decentralized and there's some who argue that that makes it more possible for black women's voices particularly at the sort of really local grassroots level to to come to the fore yeah i i had no clue about uh the women protesters at or during the March on Washington, that is such an interesting bit of information, bit of history. Yeah. With all this conversation about the Black Lives Matter movement, kind of trying to look for more of like a positive note, are you seeing any like mounting progress or mounting hope in the face of all of it, uh, in the face of all the problems that people are protesting here in the United States? Yes, and I mean, like everybody else, I get, hopefully everybody else, I've, you know, I've been thinking about this and I also have lots of historian friends. So it's really helpful for me to talk to them because they obviously understand the history more than I do. Um, I sometimes think of it in two ways. It's sort of the more negative, cynical ways that it's, you know, America has its cycles, right? We had slavery, we had abolition, we had reconstruction where blacks made tremendous gains. You had black senators, you had black lieutenant governors. And then it all came crashing down, right? With Jim Crow and the emergence of the Klan. And then we had the civil rights movement. Then we had about 10 or 15 years, maybe 20 years where black people made again, significant gains. And then it all came crashing down in the 80s. So, I mean, so one, the, the, the more sort of negative approach is to say that we're going through a cycle again. And if we are lucky, black people get 10 to 15 years of progressive social and political and economic reform out of it. 
and then we'll come crashing down again, right? So that's sort of the more cynical or negative approach, which I think some historians do embrace, right? That America has its cycles in terms of racial progress. So, and I, and I, I think there's a lot of merit to that. On the other hand, I do think, and I know a lot of people have been talking about the fact that there are many more white people in, you know, involved in these protests, um, street level protests than we saw say in the civil rights movement. And you know, people see that as a sort of sign of hope and progress. And I also believe that that is true, right? I think, I think there's a way in which that is happening and that is progressive. Um, but I also you know I'm watching certain things. Like I know, you know, the, um, what are they called? Like I've forgotten on Portland, the mom group. Oh, what's their name? What do they call themselves? Um, it's a group of self-identified uh, white women who self-identify as moms. Oh, what do they call them? They sort of try to act as a barrier between the police and um, protesters in Portland. And I think they're popping up in other cities and getting more media attention. And I'm a little wary of that because I wonder if that's just, I don't know what that will lead to in a way. It's very progressive that um, these women are participating and sacrifice, you know, giving up a lot of their time, their safety. Um, to participate in these marches. At the same time, you can see the media narrative sort of shifting to them, right? And how brave they are. Um, oh, they're called uh, wall of moms, that's what they're called. Um, you can see how the media attention sort of shifting to them and potentially away from some of the, the issues that galvanize these Black Lives Matter protests. So to answer your question, I do have some optimism in the sense that there are more whites participating in these protests. Um, I have some wariness in the sense of, is there a way in which they will end up co-opting the protests, not consciously, but perhaps unconsciously. And I also wonder, I also think it's important to situate what's happening within the sort of broader cycle of American history. Kind of turning now to looking at the politics and looking at the manner of the president right now, um, the president is digging in really heavily on nativist language and, you know, really trying to key in on the importance, and I'm putting that in air quotes, of historical monuments. Um, mm -hmm. Why does he think this will help, like, reelect him? And what, what is that kind of saying about the prevalence in the, the prevalence of racism in America? Right. Um, again, this is not my area of expertise here, so this is probably just my armchair. Um, he, he obviously has a base that I think he rightly recognizes, um, you know, feel under threat, right? You know, I can't get into their headspace entirely. I've not surveyed said base, but Trump's logic appears to be that his significant numbers of Americans feel under threat, white Americans. Some of that is a numerical threat, right? Brown and black people outnumber whites sooner rather than later. So they seem to feel under numerical threat. Maybe they feel under cultural threat um, as certain types of, I don't know, what they would see as black cultural expressions, for instance, become more mainstream. Um, it leads them to feel angry, resentful. You know, again, this is just me pontificating. I've not done the surveys, so I have no idea. But that, you know, Trump's rhetoric seems to suggest that there's a group of white folks who feel under threat. Um, and then, of course, feel under threat perhaps um, from immigrants, which is also not new in America. And it seems to me that he, maybe he's constructing things confederate as sort of a way of um, reclaiming that, uh, mitigating that threat, right? Like we can hang on to 
um, not just symbols of white supremacy, but you know the sort of economic and social arrangements that made white supremacy possible. That that you know that that will be appealing to his base, who he obviously needs to be um, reelected. Kind of keeping in with the theme earlier that you set about, or kind of the the view of history that America is just continuing through its cycles. Where does Joe Biden fit into this cycle, um, and like where does he fit historically? That's a good question. I'm not sure if I. I think that might be more. I think I, that one. I think my historian friends could answer it probably mm -hmm. in more detail and with a greater level of sophistication. But off the cuff, what I would say is that, and I think this is how Biden is marketing himself, for lack of a better word, right? He's like a safe white guy. I mean, you know, he is not hanging on. He is not. He's certainly not making an effort to align himself with, you know, things Confederate and hanging on to a sort of vision of a white supremacist America. Um, at the same time, I think he's crafting himself as someone who is still a centrist, right? Although moving slightly left. So he's not in favor of defunding the police, for instance. Um, he is, you know, I think he feels comfortable with Wall Street and Wall Street feels comfortable with him. Right. So I think he's positioning himself as someone who's a moderate, which I think is what he is. Right. Um, now, what does that mean in American history? I'm not sure. Um, you know, it could be that he's well positioned for this particular moment in, you know, in American history where, you know, the political divide seems to be fraying. But I certainly don't if he's elected, I certainly don't see him, you know, bringing about any you know, particularly radical social change. I mean, I think he's been pushed up to the left a little bit on certain issues, but um, I think he positions himself as a moderate and, you know, is a moderate. Um, it would be interesting, I, I would actually be interested in finding this question out, like, you know, when America's had its previous moments like this, you know, is it, is it the kinds of politicians like Biden who come to the fore and who are in fact successful? That would be an interesting, I'm sure there are historians who know this already, but for me, it would be interesting to sort of go back and. And, and flesh that out. Yeah, and what are you making now of uh, the, what the internet is kind of calling the veep stakes or uh, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the nominee Biden trying to find the appropriate running yeah. mate? What are you making of the search? What are you making of some of the uh, mm -hmm. candidates that are kind of in play? Yeah, I, I, and it's very interesting for me because it's, you know, he, I think at first he said he was, he kind of, he committed to choosing a woman. And then I think he's being pushed increasingly to select a woman of color, particularly an African-American woman. And for me, it's interesting because some of that is just politics, right? I mean, Biden would not be where he is in many ways without black women voters, right? And I think the Democratic Party is increasingly aware of that. Um, so, you know, he's, he in his own way is now operating at the intersection of race and gender, assuming he is going to choose a woman of color. And it's been really interesting to see the media narrative, because I think some of the women of color, he's, he, some of the potential candidates have been successful precisely because they're not especially radical. Right? Like, you know, radical politicians are not generally mainstream politicians in America, right? So these women are successful in part because they're not I mean, they're not right-wing um, <laughs> um, Trumpists, please don't get me wrong, but they're successful in part because many of them have embraced a sort of law and order agenda. They have, you know, successfully proven that they can govern 
in the center. And so, but now in the sort of Black Lives Matter moment that we're in, it's interesting that some of the names that have been floated around, a number of Black Lives Matter activists and a number of sort of more leftist politicians are like, what? No, she was actively involved in, you know, um, strengthening the, you know, the police force in XYZ city, or she turned a blind eye to police brutality. And so it's really interesting for me to see, on the one hand, it's great that he has this, you know, this list of Black women candidates that he can choose from. Um, but it's interesting to me, if I put on the lens of intersectionality, to think about why these Black women have become, not all of them, but why they were able to become successful in the first place. I mean, they had, many of them had to embrace a law and order agenda, one, to not scare white people, and two, to prove that they're as tough as men, right? So there's a sort of intersecting race and gender thing going on in the rise of many of, of these women. Um, so I think it would be very interesting to do sort of intersectional analysis around the, the discourse or the narrative that um, the media narrative around who Biden should pick. Just a couple of days ago, there was something very interesting about Kamala Harris, where I think it was, oh, I can't remember who it was, a po white male politician said that. Oh, yeah, it was Chris Dodd. Yeah, Chris Dodd says she should be out of the running because she's not like she's not sorry enough of, about the way that she attacked Biden. Um, in the debate, a number of, 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 of women politicians, white and black and otherwise, have come forth and said, well, would any man, potential ma male VP candidate, candidate be asked to show more contrition? I mean, they're like, she's a politician. She was in a debate. She attacked him. That's what politicians do. So you can kind of see the gender narrative. You know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting racialized and gender narrative. Um, and I remember seeing Harris a few months ago on one of the late night talk shows. It was Colbert, one of them. And he also asked her the question, like, do you think the way you attack Biden would work against you? And she's like, no, it was a debate. I'm a lawyer. We debate. We attack, you know. But it's interesting. I do think that if she were a man, I'm not sure if people would be or some people would be expecting this sort of contrition. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's, it's a really, we're at a very interesting moment when we think about who he chooses to be his VP candidate. Um, and then there's also, you know, Pete Farrell's, you know, he, in many ways, he might be a one-term president. So I think uh, for the Democratic Party, who they choose as vice president becomes even more important. I think bluntly, and maybe correctly, many of them wonder if, a, if, if Biden is a one-term president, if any Black woman could really carry the Democratic Party ticket, you know, as a presidential candidate. So I think, I don't know if people have come out and said that, but I think that's also a factor. Just as we're kind of uh, wrapping up here and we're running out of time, Atlantic correspondent Ta-Nehisi Coates who wrote Between the World and Me, has kind of emerged as an obvious leading voice on racism in America and has said that in this moment, quote, this feels different, end quote, than previous areas of civil rights activism and public outrage at police brutality. What, what is your take on that? Like, are you seeing, are you feeling something different this round, this cycle? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the, the things I'm more, I'm optimistic about are the sort of decentralized nature in terms of many of the Black Lives Matter protests at the grassroots level. I think particularly for Black women and Black girls, I think that creates new positive avenues for their voices to be heard. So I'm optimistic about that at the grassroots level. I mean, in terms of issues of Black self-determination, I'm less optimistic about real national structural change. I don't see it yet um beyond sort of the symbolism i mean yes i mean i know minneapolis and other places have a uh, past 
there are at the local elections at the local level some municipalities and cities have passed legislation limiting certain kinds of police powers and so maybe in terms of the you know the strict arena of how the police operate i think there will probably be some and has been and there will probably be more legislative change i'm not convinced yet in terms of more massive structural change but you know hopefully time will prove me wrong hopefully time will prove you wrong is there anything else you want to say uh before we wrap up no this has been great thanks so much for having me yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure to talk to you. I'm sure we are going to want to talk more to you uh, as the rest of the year develops and as politics just gets crazier and crazier. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.